0: Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is John Gannon founder of going vc going vc is a vc career accelerator that is designed to help you break into venture capital directly by connecting motivated vc job seekers with vc firms going vc also has its own investment arm as well in this episode you'll learn about how to enter vc the rise of cohort based learning and what the consumerization of enterprise really means without further ado here's john John, thank you so much for being here. How are you?
1: I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks for having me. Really really appreciate it.
0: I really appreciate you coming on the show. You were certainly one of the first touch points that I had when I was thinking about going to venture capital. So this was pretty cool for me. So let's talk about early in your career. What was your initial attraction to venture capital?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. And it certainly was earlier, much earlier in my career. I remember I was maybe a a few years out of college, a couple of years out of college. And I just remember this is in early 2000s, post-bust. And just reading about venture capitalists and the companies they were backing, I distinctly remember reading about Benchmark Capital and, and some of the great iconic companies that they funded. And I don't know, for some reason, it just sort of caught my attention. I don't quite know why. I, it wasn't that I was thinking, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to go into venture capital and get fabulously rich because that actually doesn't happen to most venture capitalists. It was just more that I, I guess I like the idea of folks that were backing these, these companies, these innovative companies. And I just found that kind of inherently exciting. And I think what I discovered later is that a big aspect of who i am and what i like to do is i love to help people connect just naturally be it related to jobs or helping them with something that they may be stuck with etc and so venture capital if you're if you're sort of doing it right you're doing a lot of that type of connecting and i think that once i i got a whiff that that was a big part of venture capital and doing the job that that that's really what got me i would say sort of addicted to the industry in a way and and really wanted to to get involved in some way because of that.
0: So I guess you were attracted to innovation. Why did you look at it from like the finance side as opposed to, hey, maybe I just want to be an entrepreneur and start my own company?
1: Yeah, it's it's funny you say that because that was exactly the question in my mind when I applied to business school. So I went to Columbia Business School and my plan was okay I will go in there and I will either start my own company while I'm there or I will go into VC and or I'll try to go into VC because it's a hard road for anyone but I kind of landed at Columbia and within the first month or so I based on my life situation I was about my wife was about to have our twin and I was the risk profile was different for sure that lawyer VC job is super, not super risky, but it's risky. Like there's no guarantee you're going to spend six months to a year on it. It's going to turn into anything, right? It's not a traditional job search, but it was less risky than going and starting a company from scratch. So that's why I focused there. And then I was able to spend my entire time in business school, really focused on that goal, which ended up working out uh, in the end.
0: And how did you come to start going VC and actually then becoming an entrepreneur within yourself?
1: Yeah. So back in my post-business school days, so we're talking really the, the previous recession, 2008-2009, when I left business school and started working in venture. And it was really like right when I graduated where I just started curating the resources that, that I think I'm known for today. Just a lot of stuff about how to get a job at venture, how to be a good venture capital associate, all that sort of, of stuff. And so that is on and still remains on johngannonblog.com today. And then I have a newsletter that I sort of launched. Uh, it was actually a few years later. That's actually a big regret. I should have started the newsletter day one, but the newsletter as well, right, was kind of a platform to, to sort of help people at scale, right? I could send out an email and I could help 1,000 or 2,000 or now 19,000 people at once, right? And then on the other side, I had started to do a few years after that uh one-on-one coaching in terms of people who are trying to break into venture capital and I would work with them very specifically on their specific situation their specific background how to pitch themselves things like that and so that's very intensive very focused right but it's also time consuming you know you can only help so many people through that and it's more effective because you're you're literally spending an hour with them on their own situation right but it's not going to scale and so I realized and, and this is going on now 5 years ago that there was a real gap in the market for uh in essence a, a program that was more community based, more cohort based, where you're actually taking a bunch of people who are all focused on the same goal, you're putting them together and then you're giving them frameworks, tools, network access to be able to to get to where they're they're trying to go go. And now a lot of what you're hearing on Twitter, et cetera, is people are calling this cohort based education. But uh, you know, Five years ago, I don't even know what it was called. We just sort of said, these are the things we think folks will be interested in. And so we basically MVP'd this where the MVP was, can we get people looking for VC jobs to sign up? And can we get VCs to come and talk to them about what it's like to be in venture and what they've learned in venture and, and things like that. And as we were about a couple of years in, call it, we we sort of realized um, that, that there was something there. And so I actually kind of formalized formed an actual company around it where it was originally just a side project. And one of the folks that I was working on it, we actually formed an official partnership. He's now the, the founding CEO and my co-founding partner. So that's where we are today.
0: When you were coaching these folks that are trying to break into VC, what were the biggest gaps you were seeing? Was it like on the technical side? Was it more like personality or like what kind of gaps were like most common?
1: I actually don't see... Functional gaps, like oh, this person doesn't know how to do financial modeling, like those things can be overcome if you're doing a lot of the other core things that that VCs care about. So when I think about VCs and sort of what they care about, what I call it is I call it the five-legged stool. So there's five things that VCs care a ton about. There's deal flow, right? There's raising money for their own funds there is hiring for their portfolio companies there's portfolio company like BDM and a stuff and then there's portfolio company sales or if it's b2c stuff distribution and so you as a job seeker part of what you need to do is figure out out of those five legs of the stool what where can you add value right not everyone is going to have deal flow connections to limited partners who can invest and a great talent pipeline right it's just not going to happen but Everyone, based on their own personal background, network experiences, can add value to one of those legs or multiple legs. So, part of my coaching and process was really to really understand where they're coming from and look at not just the resume but like the story behind it, and then be able to tease out okay, out of those five different areas, where can you actually lean in with what you have now and and start to deliver value. Deal flow is is generally very important, particularly for early stages. So. So that one, in a sense, maybe stands on its own. But yeah, those are the five things that VCs care about. So really trying to figure out for the, the client, how do they start to get traction in, in one or more of those?
0: So looking at, at these five pillars and going through them with the client and understanding, okay, where do you actually have an edge in one of these areas? And maybe focus in or lean in on one of them and kind of expand that out.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if you've worked in a certain sector and it's a you're you're passionate about as well, well, then developing deal flow in that sector could be a real differentiator for you potentially. Whereas if you're coming from, say, the family office world, well, the leg around raising money for your own fund as a VC, someone at a family office who's done some venture stuff, right, they could add a lot of value there potentially. If it's someone who has worked in business development potentially to be able to bring some ideas and thoughts to the table around, hey, VC, you have this portfolio company based on my BD experience. Like here are five companies that they should talk to. And oh by the way, I could actually make those introductions, right? It's those sorts of things.
0: How did you initially think about these cohort-based learning? And how did you map that out and then as well as a little bit more about how you started going VC, that'd be great.
1: So going VC, it's really a venture capital platform business and our goal is to make the industry more transparent, to make networks, information, talent Uh, more accessible to all. And we do that through education, through content. Eventually, we'll move into other areas as well. And we're best known for our cohort-based education program. It's our flagship program. We've got over 300 members and alums worldwide. And they go on to work at a variety of different VC firms, accelerators, venture studios, etc. So firms that you've heard of like CRV and Floodgate, and then much smaller firms that are just getting off the ground and all sorts of folks in between. And that business is doing really well. It's done over a million in lifetime revenue, and this year in 2021, we'll probably do that just by itself. Some of the other pieces of the platform that we've now started to add in... So we've got an investment arm called Going VC Partners. We've invested in 15-plus early-stage companies, uh, mostly seed stage. We have Going VC Angels, which is an angel education and deal flow uh, platforming community. And then there's several other businesses that we're considering as as well, and we'll continue to, to add those in over time. And in terms of the model and kind of the inspiration for it, really love and really inspired by what Tiny has done, Andrew Wilkinson, and even Berkshire Hathaway, right? Like, obviously, that's a, another league in the sense of a huge, huge, huge business. But that whole model of kind of buying, investing, operating, and kind of mixing that together, I feel like that's something that because of the platform community, et cetera we built, we're actually in a really great position to build for the VC space. That's
0: Really cool. What are some of the differences when someone applies to your program or just anyone that you talk to that has an interest in VC of folks that are focused on being a pre-seed or seed investor versus like a series A, series B investor, if that makes sense.
1: In terms of where the program sees candidates and their their interest in which stage of VC to go into, I think is what you're you're asking. And it runs the gamut. I would say it definitely skews earlier stage. So seed, A, that type of thing. But there's there's folks in the program who then go on and, and maybe they go to a, a later stage shop as well. The other dynamic that's been, frankly, a surprise is that we have a number of folks in the program who actually, they, they already work in VC. They're, they actually have a VC job already. And they're looking to grow in their career, build their network, build the deal flow, et cetera. And so they use the program in a slightly different way, but it's all additive to the community, which is which is really great.
0: Do you also rely since you also have a fund? Like, have you also maybe sourced deals just through the actual going VC platform?
1: Yeah. So we have Going VC Partners, which is our investment arm. We don't have a fund today. We do these deal by deal and form SPVs to, to be clear. But yes, absolutely for folks in the program. It is optional, although the folks who get the most out of the program do do it. It's called the investor program. And in essence, what they do is they source companies, they do due diligence on companies. And ultimately, we invest in some of those those companies. And like I said, the portfolio now is is 15 plus companies. And so absolutely, they're getting that hands-on experience in terms of uh, almost all the things that a VC would need to do. And... For the investments that we do make, that's actually a chance for them to say, hey, I sourced that, right? Which is a, a great thing to be able to go to a firm and say, hey, I sourced this, this deal and it got invested in and those sorts of things.
0: How do you think hiring has changed ever since you maybe first started this or what you've seen? Are VCs now more open? It's less so about who you know, per se, or do you think that, that there actually has not been a significant change?
1: I think there's definitely more awareness and a genuine desire to improve the situation over the last year. So that I would okay that's definitely the case. Still, <clears throat> you'll see there are many firms that hire people and you don't actually hear about it until that person is hired, right? And I obviously on my blog is one of the the main places people go to look for VC jobs and those are those are simply the jobs that firms are willing to talk about. Because there's many firms that are actively conducting searches, but they're kind of doing it more transparent, uh, not more trans, less transparently through say recruiters, or they're just kind of getting a lot of folks inbound because folks who want to get into VC know that they can't just rely on job posts. They have to be out there hustling, networking, meeting people. So yeah, I think there's a a kind of a, a ways to go because the sort of the network based recruiting, right? It's very based on the networks that those firms already have in place and it's sort of the easy thing to do to just kind of like let that keep coming to you, right? Like if two GPs are Stanford folks and Stanford folks reach out, like that's, that's easy, right? So there needs to be uh, an effort, I think, not only to make the fact that one is hiring more transparent, but then actually proactively working to get into the top of the funnel, folks who might not otherwise consider venture or who might not otherwise be in the majority in terms of folks who are are breaking into venture.
0: What are some of the other ways that venture capital has changed since you started out of fund after grad school?
1: Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day and I'm in New York, so I can kind of pick on New York and it's okay. But I just remember back when I was breaking into the industry, I don't even know how many firms there were in New York, but maybe there were like five to 10. And a bunch of them, the sort of big win that they would tout was this company that I remember calling it. it was called massive, and and Microsoft bought them, and you know it was a decent exit, but it wasn't like a today in New York we have Mongo, we have DigitalOcean, we have AppNexus, right? Like all these multi-billion-dollar exits, right? The point being that the size of the industry has just kind of massively expanded. I also think even though I we just talked about how there's lack of transparency in certain areas around hiring, but I think in terms of information about venture capital about what should be in a term sheet, what shouldn't be, things you have to think about in terms of if you're raising on a safe or convertible note, like all those sorts of things. There's a lot more out there written. So I think that's that's a positive. And also related to that, there's there's just more kind of options for funding, right? Like sort of back in the day, it was either convertible note or it was equity, right? But now we've got safes. now we've got other alternative financing vehicles, things like, uh, I think the company is called Fast, where you can do like revenue-based financing and not that revenue-based financing is like a new thing, but I think the tech industry has taken hold of some of these these concepts and created more scalable products around them that that entrepreneurs can leverage more easily.
0: So what's the differences of people in your cohorts that maybe make it into venture versus those that don't?
1: Yeah, it's the age-old adage of you, you sort of get out of it what you put in. And the folks who I've seen lean hardest into the program are typically the folks who are, I would say at the end of the day, more successful. Now, the, the program, I, th- I think, helps, I hope, helps, but it's also, I think, the types of folks that we admit are, are folks who are just incredibly motivated to break into venture, right? And they're gonna do whatever it takes to, to do that. And, and then they're in an environment where there are another 50, 60, 70 folks in their cohort who are, right, all kind of working together towards the same goal. So I think it's those kinds of folks who tend to do sort of the best, if you will, in the in the program. Not that we're grading people or anything, but the flip side of it is someone who joins the program, pays the program fee, but they don't participate in our Slack group. They don't show up to our weekly educational sessions that we have with different VCs. They don't do the investor program, right? That's kind of on the flip side. But the other thing, which is just something that, that is important for me as a founder is, you know, this thing is, is definitely my baby. And so I get a, a huge charge out of people to just really seeing them lean in hard and seeing in the Slack group when someone asks a question and then someone jumps in like, yeah, I know about that. And by the way, I'm free for a call next Tuesday between five and seven. Like let's, let's talk. Right. Like that's, that's just awesome to see. And that's really the power of a cohort based program. Right. It's that. I don't, or my co founder doesn't need to jump in and give individualized advice to everyone. And in fact, it's a better outcome when you're getting extremely laser focused specific advice through people who have gone through the specific thing you have or dealt with the specific thing you have. And I've been doing venture capital education, content, et cetera, for 13 years now, which is kind of crazy to say. But there's situations I haven't seen, right? There's sectors I don't know. And that's where the power of, this three hundred plus uh, member and alumni community really comes into play to be able to, in essence, cover almost anything that that you're stuck on that you need help with that you need insight into. There's a couple people I have in mind specifically who have just been they just consistently go above and beyond in terms of like we have someone who's at a early stage fund. He was I think he was in cohort three. We're about to start admissions for cohort nine. Just to give you a sense of the the time we've been been working on this, but he's. He's acting as basically, we call them principals in our investor program. So he's in essence, he's working in VC now full time, but he's coaching this next generation of folks who are going through going VC, right? So he's getting great experience, kind of almost like running a sort of a, a deal team, right? And they're getting some experience because he's actually, you know, he's gone through this, he's gone through the program, he's working in venture, he has that experience. So he's doing that kind of stuff as an alum, and there's no obligation, right? He, he wants to do it. Uh, and at the same time, the other day we were uh, invited to do a uh, kind of a call a lunch and learn uh, presentation about interviewing best practices with uh, Souza Ventures and their fellowship program, and so. He went and he spent an hour with them and they had a great experience and he had a great time. And it's just awesome to see, you know, it wasn't a twist the arm thing. It was, Hey, would you be up for this? And him saying, Yeah, you know, definitely I, I would. And it comes back around the sense like someone like him or this other, uh, this woman I'm thinking of in the program, you know, pretty much anything they ask of me, I will do. Right. Because they have just leaned so hard into this community, into this program and they're doing it for the right reasons. And so that's just. You want to help people like that. And I think that's a good takeaway for folks who are looking to break into the business is really having that give first mentality where you're just coming into every interaction thinking about how can I help this person? How can I make this person's life better? How can I connect them to the right talent, the right capital, etc.?
0: Are there any special skill sets that one needs to have to enter on the consumer side of things?
1: I think it's less about skill set and it's more about being kind of a geek around trying products be it a consumer product. Or be it a you're talking about a B2C tech product, apps, apps, whatever. I think someone who's actually willing to try stuff and maybe even buy stuff so that they can get experience hands-on and get a real opinion about an app or a or a product. I think that piece is is super important to be able to develop an opinion around what you like and what you don't like from a product perspective as an investor. And there's really no reason one can't do that today. Like if you're if you're interested in consumer, I don't know, maybe it's consumer wellness apps or something like that. Pretty much all of them are free, and maybe the subscription is five bucks a month. Like, if you really want to get into VC and that's a space you really like, like, go download those apps, pay the five bucks, like, use them, try them, have a really strong opinion on them, right? There's like, there's really no excuse. It's a different story if it's like, go out and buy a $2,000 e rowing machine or something like that, like, you know, stuff, or go buy a Peloton. That's a different story, different level of, of cash you need to outlay. But for most of this stuff, it's, it's free or low cost. So there's really no excuse to, to not just dive in there and start playing around with stuff.
0: Now in going VC, do you only solely focus on VC as it relates to technology companies? Or do you also look at consumer products as well?
1: Yeah. So we look at really any sector because at this point, we have 300 plus members and alums. And they're in all different sectors. Some come from consumers, some come from enterprise, some come from consumer products. It, it really is all over the map and, and, and in a good way. So if you look at the companies we've gone on to invest in at Going VC Partners, we do have certainly some, some software type companies, SaaS, etc. But we're also an investor in a company called We The People, which is a, a women's consumer product company. Right. We're an investor in a company called Athena, which is a B2C play focused on child support and child support payment and all sort of the pain around that multi-billion dollar market. Um, both female founders and both uh, women of color as well. So yeah, it's a very diverse portfolio across many dimensions from sector, background of founders, etc.
0: That's really cool. Are you seeing, uh, based on your observation, that funds are becoming more specialized or more generalists?
1: I feel like they're becoming more generalists, but they're kind of pretending that they're specialized. So a lot of firms will brand themselves around a certain area, but at the end of the day, the thing they're branding around it actually ends up being quite broad and gives them a lot of levity to both get inbound on and sort of even write a check into a company because they can. Say, yeah, that this fits into our thesis. A great example, I'll pick on, and this is not any one particular fund, but there's a lot of funds who who say they have a focus on future of work. So future of work could be something like a Zoom competitor, right? Like that that could fit into future of work, right? On the same token, future of work could be a freelancer payment platform. On the same token, future of work could be. An information security company that is focused on remote workers, right? Like, there's so many different things that you could fit in that bucket. But you, as the investor, right? You don't want to necessarily close yourself off to deal flow. So, if you have something like future work, it can be interpreted, I think, pretty pretty broadly. And then also on the flip side, if you if you see something that comes in and and that founder sort of feels like, hey, we're future work, you can say, no, actually, this this doesn't really fit into future work, so we're gonna pass. And I'm I'm being a little bit unfair because I think if you peel the onion, some of the firms do have a, a kind of a deeper way of defining these things. So even though they say future work, because that's that's the easy soundbite, right? You can't give a two-page description on the front page of your website, right? You got to kind of get to the point. But uh, but yeah, it, it's interesting to see because I do think that generalist funds will try to position themselves in a way that I would call Goldilocks—like it's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's it's just right to get enough deal flow, enough breath, be able to invest in things that maybe they're not exactly on your thesis, but they're close enough. And And so if you get involved, it's not going to necessarily have your LPs asking questions. I wanted to also jump in and build on that with some actionable advice for folks who are looking for a VC job. So I think that strategy works well for... A VC firm, but I think for a job seeker, you do actually want to get a little bit more specific because you don't want to be the hundredth person that the firm has heard from in the last two months about how they're super excited about air quotes fintech, right? You you need to get a little more specific to really differentiate yourself as to what subset of fintech is interesting to you. Do you find promising from an investment perspective, or Consumer products, right? That's, you know, better for you, right? Like that's too broad. But if it's consumer products, better for you, and it's in a certain slice of of the market, you know, maybe it's 40 and over women or right, you can kind of pick a another slice of that. And I think that specificity helps you create differentiation as a job seeker in BC, which is incredibly important because there's a lot of people who are out there competing for these. These roles, and so a big part of this is how do you stand out as a candidate, and more importantly, how do you do it authentically? Another mistake I see people make is there's a certain area that's really kind of uh, hot with VCs. So maybe it's a certain type of consumer product, maybe it's related to AI, right? Like there's certain areas that are getting a lot of, of press and, and venture interest, but if you can't tie that interest back to your what I call your, your sweet spot, then it's going to be hard for you to get excited about it, stay excited about it, be credible with founders when you're sourcing. So when I say sweet spots, what I mean is if you think about, I know it's a podcast, so it's hard to maybe visualize this, but if you created a Venn diagram of your life where you had three circles, one circle was your kind of personal background, one circle was your professional background, and one circle was your, your passion. When you put those three circles together, there's an intersection that's actually incredibly unique and there's very few if any folks who have that same intersection and that that sweet spot is really where you can kind of look to find what is the area that i want to hang my hat on as a potential investor what what sector subsector is interesting to me and 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 why and tying that to your personal story and that can become really compelling
0: so how do you look at consumer companies
1: for me i really am focused on Software and cloud-based businesses. So take what I'm saying related to to B2C software and SaaS specifically. So for me, and and some of this comes from certainly my previous career background, but also for the last four plus years, I've been a, a product manager at DigitalOcean, which is a, a cloud company with a very much B2C kind of adoption model. And so the things I key in on based on that experience is. With new consumer companies, when I'm trying their product, does it have the little things? Does it have the polish that really shows that there's someone who's really maniacally focused on the user experience, the user interface and the the design of that? And by little things, I mean, is the spacing proper between different elements on the page or different elements within the app? Are there minor typos, right? Maybe there's a space missing between a period and the next word, right? Some people would be like, oh, whatever. They wouldn't even notice it, right? But it's those little things that actually matter quite a bit in terms of evaluating a consumer company. And then the other thing that's important to me, and also it's probably because I'm, I'm coming from a product background, is is the speed at which a founder iterates and ships based on feedback. And a good example of this was... Uh, there's a company called Norby, which is coincidentally a creator economy type of company. So they have this platform where you can, in essence, monetize events and streams and, and things like that. And so I had heard about them uh, one of the folks, Our Going VC program, had, it kind of brought them to us as a potential investment opportunity. And so I was like, okay, I'll try the product. Like This is something I would probably use. So I set it up and started using it. And there were definitely some rough spots, as you would expect, because it was a new product, right? And the founders were super responsive to my feedback. I saw them actually implement quickly some of the things I had brought up. But also they pushed back on things where they know their product the best, right? So I I, I see it as a great signal where you get, it's not just yes, 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 but it's like yes, yes. No, actually not that one. Right. That one doesn't make sense for us. So we're not gonna we're not gonna do that right now. And so that dynamic I think is is really great to see because you've just gotta you've gotta have really high velocity, especially in consumer. Like you can't just ship like once a month. You have to be shipping every week.
0: What is one thing that you would change about VC? There's a couple of
1: things I think VC can certainly still work on. One is Obviously from a, a DNI perspective, things are still just way out of whack, right? And I think over the last year, there's more awareness, there's more genuine desire to, to address and try to fix the problem. But there's still a, a long, long way to go there. Also, transparency is is still not there around certain areas of venture. One area actually that I think is is super murky is around scouting, scouting programs, how much do scouts get, who has scouts. That's an area that that I'm kind of keen to to figure out is there a way to to open the kimono on that one a bit and and same with who is hiring? we talked about that before there's a lot of firms and some of the best firms in the world right where they just don't post jobs but they're definitely hiring people so how do we how do we get to a place where folks are are being as open as possible about when they are are looking for folks and then one other thing is there are things like safes and There are convertible nodes and there's, there's some elements of venture that are like fairly standard. But when you look at things like due diligence, for example, everyone's kind of got their own unique spin on it, right? And how they do it. One investor makes on a certain thing related to, I don't know, um, repeat orders, whereas another investor might focus more on uh, the strength of a social media following or community, right? It, It just, it's all over the map. And so I wonder if there's a way to, to create kind of a shared set of standards around this. So founders can actually look at that shared set of standards and, and at least get a sense of like where they stand. And I don't think we'd ever get to a place where everyone is doing due diligence the same way. But I actually think that we could probably get eighty percent and get it to a place where the industry is comfortable with that 80% and, and gives people some room for creativity and and wiggle room. That one I think is that's a tough one. I don't know if we'll ever see that happen, but that, I would love to see that because it would just take a lot of the mystery out of this and would make the market more efficient.
0: Well, then what's your approach to due diligence? Because I'd imagine since it's cohort-based, everyone kind of thinks about due diligence differently. I'd imagine that could be quite challenging with Going VC in terms of teaching people how to do diligence since so there is no no standard.
1: In terms of due diligence for for Going VC partners and for and training modules that really help them get a base level of understanding, and even I would say beyond a base level of understanding of what types of things to look for in different kinds of businesses. And then they're also supported by their principal. So each sort of small group of investors in the investor program, these scouts, they're being uh, mentored, shepherded, etc. by someone who has venture experience as well. So that person then layers in some of their own personal experiences. Now, personal experiences will vary person to person, right? To kind of to your point. But at the same time, there are the basic boxes of things that you need to look at as part of diligence. And folks in the program, definitely, they leave the program if they've done the investor program and they've gone through the, the modules and materials, et cetera. They're going to know the 8, 9, 10 things they should look for. Now, is one of the things... Will they look at it exactly like Bill Gurley would? Like, I don't know, right? But they'll, they'll definitely know what the right boxes are. They at least need to look at or spend time on when they're evaluating an investment.
0: What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Personally, the book that inspires me the most and
1: I, I like to go back to it. And especially when I'm feeling contemplative is uh, Anne Mora Lindbergh. Uh, it's called Gift of the Sea, I think is the title. And it's sort of a book about life and growing up and getting older and the cycle of life. So it's just a really nice book. I appreciate it and I go back to it every year, really. And then professionally, there's a book called Getting Everything You Can Out of All That You've Got by a guy named Jay Abraham. So Jay Abraham is a longtime sort of marketing, I guess, guru, uh, for lack of a better term. A lot of business books sort of say the same thing, at least in my opinion. And he he actually has a lot of unique ideas that I've not really heard other people present at all or in the same way. And he also deep dives a lot on, in essence, ways to create revenue and wealth out of nothing. And it sounds a little bit maybe cliche, but but actually the techniques are very real, very usable, very applicable to any kind of business, whether you're doing your own startup or you're starting a side hustle or even at your day job potentially. So that's an awesome one as well. And and, and that's a book I gift to people every year. I'll send books to the, the Going VC team. And this is one that, that definitely shows up.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, neither of these books have been featured or listed on our book list over here. No one's ever mentioned these two books. So I'm really excited to add them. My final question for you is what's your best piece of advice for someone that's looking to go into VC?
1: My best advice. For folks looking to break into VC, there's there's two. I know you only asked for one, but I'll give you two. So one is, come to every meeting that you're having, meeting, call, Zoom, whatever, prepared to add value. So think about that five-legged stool that I talked about earlier and come in and spend before that meeting 5, 10, 15 minutes and really try to figure out what are some ideas that I can bring to this person that are a value add to them and they might not even necessarily be a value add to me, right? It's one thing to offer something to someone to help them. But in the back of your mind, what you're really thinking is, oh, this will actually help me too. But more about... Think about them and only them and think about how you can help them. And then the second one is learn how to write a good email subject line. The reason someone opens your email or not, particularly people who don't know you. So investing in reading... About how to craft a good subject line, what makes a good subject line, et cetera. It's well worth your time because you think about how many emails you send every day, week, month. And especially when you're looking for a venture job, you're going to be sending a lot of emails, you're going to be asking a lot of people to make introductions for you. Just get good at that because if your email doesn't get open, it doesn't exist.
0: Do you have any resources for anyone that's looking to understand how to craft a good re- email line?
1: There's a lot out there that is Googleable. I wrote an ebook, it's, it's free. It's available, and I can I can certainly give you a link. It's called "15 Emails That Work," and I basically took 15 different emails that I actually sent that got a response, and they were emails to sort of probably the same types of folks that your audience is looking to read, sort of busy people, VCs, etc. And so it it actually shows each email, shows the response, and and breaks down bit by bit what worked in the email, including in the subject line, but also in the body as well.
0: John, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Absolutely,
1: Mike. I've had a ton of fun and really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and also to chat with the folks listening to this podcast.
0: And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with John. You can follow him at John M. Gannon. And also feel free to check out Going VC. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at Consumer VC. Thanks for listening, everyone.